Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today I have the honor of talking with Dr. Sasan Tavasoli. He's a guest here at Beeson Divinity School for one of our special emphases, and it's a great privilege to welcome you to the Beeson Podcast. Uh, thank you, Dr. George. The honor is truly mine, and I've really enjoyed my time being with your community these past couple of days. Thank you for having me. Sure. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about your own background. You are from the Middle East, a very strategic area of our world. Tell us about uh, your background and kind of how you got from there to where you are today. Sure. Uh, I was actually born and raised in Iran. I come from the capital city of Tehran. And uh, I grew up in a Shiite Muslim home. Uh, both my parents were practicing Sufi Muslims. Mm. Uh, Sufi Islam is the mystical wing of Islam. And I grew up in a home at the time of the Shah of Iran, before the Islamic Revolution. I grew up in a home that was very progressive, very liberal in its religious orientation. A lot of discussions about literature and philosophy, poetries of Rumi and Hafez. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the home, the Muslim experience I had growing up in Iran as a child in the 1970s. And then when I was about 10 years old, we experienced the Iranian revolution, the mm-hmm. coming of the Ayatollah Khomeini. Some of my own relatives were executed right after the revolution because of their association with the Shah of Iran. And we saw a very different side of Islam, a very radical, anti-Western, militant, extremist version of Islam. So I kind of grew up with being exposed to two very different interpretations. And the revolution was 1979? 1979, yes. And then you had the American hostage crisis in 1980. So that's kind of my background, growing up in a Shiite Muslim country, in a Sufi home, and experiencing the Iranian revolution. And uh, then we got in an eight-year war in the 80s between Iran and Iraq, and about a million people were killed in that in, in that long war. And so a lot of families that could afford to would send their sons out of the country so they would not be drafted into the military. So my family decided to send me out uh, to kind of basically save me from going to the fronts. And I left Iran in 1984, the middle of the Iran-Iraq war, May of 84, four days before I turned 16. And the significance of that is that if I had uh, if I had reached 16, then it would have been illegal for me to leave the country. I would have been banned from leaving the country. And I would have then had to serve in the military after graduating from high school. So I got out right, you know, before I turned 16. And my parents' plan was to send me to a Sufi Muslim community south of the UK in the Brighton area, south of England. Couldn't get a visa to go to England. And uh, by God's providence, I ended up going to Portugal and uh, going to a Christian school which had been started by a group of American missionaries. Independent group of American missionaries had had uh, established a church and, a, and an English-speaking school for the expat community in Portugal. So, you know, our plans was to go to a Muslim community in England. God's plan was for me to end up going to a Christian school in Portugal. And it was through the ministry of this school and this church and a group of American missionaries who befriended me and, and were kind to me and shared the gospel with me that I came to Christ through their 
ministry in Portugal in 1985. And then shortly after that, an American couple who were touring Portugal, they met me, they sponsored me, and I ended up coming to America in the fall of 85 on a student visa. So I've been living in the U.S. since 1985. So U.S. has been home to me for the past 32 years. I know you've lived a number of places, the U.K., you've lived uh, in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. New England, and now based in Atlanta. Yes. So uh, your ministry is wide as well as deep. Uh, one of the things uh, I want you to talk about maybe uh, before we finish our conversation is your book, Christian Encounters with Iran. Uh-huh. A lot of people don't really understand, I think, Iran or the Muslim faith in mm-hmm. general. You, you talk about the Sufi mm-hmm. stream within Islam. Uh, the more general distinction is between Sunni uh, Muslims mm-hmm. and uh, Muslims who are Shia. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that to us? Sure, sure. Um, statistically, about 85 to 90 percent of Muslims around the world are Sunni Muslims. 10 to 15 percent are Shiite Muslims. And Sufism uh, goes in both camps, Shiite and oh. Sunni. It's not a distinct group within Islam. Uh, but in terms of the, the fundamental difference between Shiite Islam and Sunni Islam is a difference about it happened actually, it goes back into history, uh, right at the time of the death of Prophet Muhammad. And there was no successor that had been chosen by Prophet Muhammad to succeed him as the leader of the Muslim community, not in his office as a prophet, as Islam claims, but in his office as a leader of the community. So the majority of Muslims picked an elder statesman, one of the followers of Muhammad, to be their leader. A minority group says, no, he is not the legitimate leader. Uh, we need to pick Muhammad's son-in-law and cousin, Ali. So the split was about... I mean, in Islam, there is really no difference between politics and theology and religion. But at the core, the the split was about who can lead the community uh, Mm -hmm. and who has the authority to, to interpret the scriptures and seek God's will for the community of believers. So it's a political division, but it's also a theological division. So then later in history, there was a lot of fighting between the, the Sunni group and the Shiite group, and the Shiite leaders were martyred and killed by the leaders of the Sunni community. So there's also deep hatred and animosity between Shiite Islam and Sunni Islam. But fundamentally, the difference was about who should succeed Muhammad as the leader of the community. And, and that's the difference. Iran is largely Shia. Yes. Uh, whereas most, as you say, of the rest of the uh, Muslim world would be Sunni. That's correct. Uh, but you are from a country that was deeply uh, impacted by the Shia uh, Muslim community. That's correct. Uh, so Iran is the only officially Shiite country, but now Iraq is also ruled by a Shiite government because the majority of people of Iraq are Shiite Muslims. Yeah. And then there are Shiite communities all over the Middle East. Syria, Lebanon, yes, places yes. like that. Mm-hmm. Also mm-hmm. even Yemen, I yes. think, as and, well. And even, yeah. and even there are Shiite populations in Saudi Arabia and oh. in the Persian Gulf countries. So yes. Yeah. Now, you're our guest here at Beeson. We're so glad to have you with us. You've made a tremendous uh, impression on our community, our students, our faculty. Uh, you know, we are celebrating this year the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We consider ourselves to be a reformational seminary Amen. in a way. Uh, but I wonder if you would comment on how the Reformation has affected uh, the Middle East, in particular Islam and Iranian society. 
That's a, that's a great question. And I'm not sure if I have a very precise or clear answer for this. When I did my PhD study at the University of Birmingham in England, I actually wanted to study the impact of Protestant theology on Iranian Shiite Muslim thinkers. And for the most part, I did not find a great deal. Now, Iranian intellectuals uh, look at someone like Martin Luther as a reformist. But Iranian Muslims, uh, like all Muslims, believe that all religions are basically the same because all prophets have come from God. So in essence, what Jesus has said is not that different from what Muhammad has said, from what Moses has said. So they look at all religions as originally having come from God. Of course, you know, Muslims view that Christian teachings have been corrupted through the centuries. And so, but they look at the reformation from the perspective of Islam, that a religion can be led astray by its religious leaders, and you need reformers that bring, you know, bring revival and reformation to the true teachings of the prophet. So they, they can view reformation as, yes, in the, in the medieval period, the church had gone astray and someone like Luther brought reformation to the teachings of Jesus. And the same way that we need Muslim reformers to bring reform to Islam. You know, we have a lot of Muslim reformers who are inspired by Luther. Not that they really know much about Protestant theology, but just this category that every religion can become corrupt through centuries and you need people that bring reformation and revival to that religion. So that's kind of the mentality towards Luther and Protestant theology, but not a very deep engagement with Protestant thought and theology. Muslim intellectuals who are interested in Christianity are interested to understand more about Christian spirituality and Christian ethics, but they are very dismissive of Christian theology in general. You know, the the Reformation was an axial age. It was was a turning point in in many ways. And one of the great um, events of that era was the fall of Constantinople in 1453, uh, which set up a a more intense conflict. It wasn't the origin, of course, of conflict, but uh, the Ottoman Turks in particular, Suleiman the Magnificent and others, led uh, forces. uh, And so there was a contest between Christendom, including both Catholics and Protestants, and also Islam. And that's often seen in some ways as presaging uh, what one person has called, you know, the clash of civilizations. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about that analysis? Do you agree with that? Or is there another way to see it? Well, I mean, there's so much I can say, but the very phrase clash of civilizations that Samuel Huntington popularized, actually, it, it was a huge impetus for the Iranian government to promote dialogue among civilizations back in the early 2000. Uh, one of our former presidents of Iran, President Khatami, actually proposed this idea and the UN called the year 2001 the year of dialogue among civilizations because this idea of the clash of civilizations really started making some Muslims think that we don't want to clash with the West. We need to start a dialogue. Mm-hmm. So since the beginning of the 20th First century, there has been a huge movement towards Muslim-Christian dialogue, not just among Sunni Muslims, but also among Iranian Shiites. In fact, that's basically the heart of my PhD research in my book, that Iran started getting engaged with dialogue with the Catholic Church. 
Church, with the Orthodox Church, with the World Council of Churches. Unfortunately, evangelicals were not present at the table. So I've been trying to encourage evangelicals to engage with Muslims on dialogue. But uh, but in terms of the idea of the clash of civilizations has captured the heart of many Muslim intellectuals and thinkers, and some of them do not want to see a clash, so they want to uh, promote the ideas of dialogue and better understanding, and that's, it is having an impact among some of the Iranian Shiite intellectuals and clerics, these dialogues mm. and, a, and a greater exposure uh, to the Christian ideas. Well, let, let me go back to the Reformation and ask you about the role of the scriptures, the Bible in particular. Of course, the printing press was invented, uh, in the West anyway, in the 15th century, 1455, the first uh, book published was the Bible in Latin, and soon uh, the printing press became an agent of religious change, uh, an agent, some would say, of revolution in some ways, uh, at least in, in consciousness and in learning, literacy. Say a little bit about um, the Bible, the scriptures in Iran. Do, do, do people in Iran have access to the Bible? Can they read the scriptures in their own language? Bibles are basically illegal in Iran by the Iranian government. We had an Iranian Bible society that was shut down a few years after the revolution. So we have now started an Iranian Bible society in diaspora under the umbrella of the United Bible Society. But Bibles are basically illegal. Uh, we have a number of translations of the Bible, some older translations, uh, translations that happened about over a hundred years ago, and some newer translations. So we have a, we have a number of good translations of the Bible, but there are ministries outside of Iran that print Bibles and then smuggle Bibles into Iran. Or but another new platform is digital, you know, digital platforms and smartphones. So there is access to the scriptures, online access. Now, even the Iranian government blocks Christian websites, but Iranians know how to bypass that. So the Bibles are not freely available. But if an Iranian wants to have a Bible, uh, with some effort, they can have access to a Bible. And there are lots of ministries that are printing Bibles, sending Bibles to Iran, and God is using uh, in a significant way, the the sending of scriptures into Iran, again, through printed materials, digital resources, the Bible is being used significantly in the expansion of the gospel in Iran. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the history of the Christian witness, the mission in Iran. And in particular, uh, you, Bibles are not legally uh, permitted, right. those you've just explained that there are ways of access. Uh, what about missionary activity? Let me say this actually to your audience. I want, I want the American church to know that we had an ancient, vibrant church in Iran, Church of the East. You know, Philip Jenkins and, yeah. and others, Samuel Moffat, uh, late professor at Princeton Seminary, they have documented in some of their books that there was an ancient, vibrant Christian presence in Iran and in the Middle East. And in fact, I want your audience to also know that it was Iranians, the Church of the East, who took the gospel to China in the 7th century. Mm. We have archaeological proof of that in, in Chinese archaeology about how the Persian monks on Silk Road traveled to China. In fact, Richard Foltz, uh, a scholar of religion in his book, Religion in the Land of the Noble, says that for the first 100 years, the Chinese called Christianity the Persian religion because mm. they had heard the gospel from Iranian missionaries so that we have a glorious history but that history was kind of wiped out with the advent of Islam and the, and the invasion by the Mughals in the 12th century 
and so on and so forth. So the church kind of died out for many centuries. The advent of modern Christianity, modern mission in Iran, goes back to the 1830s. And American Presbyterian missionaries went to Iran and other parts of the Middle East around the 1830s. So the American missionaries, some of them were doctors and educators. And the plan was to, because of the history of the Church of the East, uh, which the Americans, when the Americans went to Iran, that Church of the East later was called the Nestorian Church. And then when the American missionaries went there, they called it the Assyrian Church, Assyrian Christian mm-hmm. community. Their vision was, when American missionaries first, first went to Iran in the 1830s, their vision was to bring revival to Assyrian Christian communities and have the Assyrians rediscover their missionary zeal to then start spreading the gospel once again in Persia. That did not work out and the Assyrians as a minority oppressed community wanted to keep keep their faith to themselves and protect themselves. So eventually, American missionaries started engaging with the Iranian Muslim communities. Later on, the Anglican Church sent mission work to Iran. So, so missionary activity goes back to the early part of the 19th century. But basically, all of that came to an abrupt halt at the time of the revolution. So all American missionaries were kicked out in 1980, and the Iranian government accused them of all being CIA agents. I have the newspaper article that was published with all the pictures of the American missionaries when they were all kicked out. Uh, A number of leaders were assassinated. Uh, uh, Anglican pastors were assassinated in the beginning of the revolution. So there was an abrupt halt to all missionary activity in Iran. And the Iranian regime says this is now going to be the end of the church now that the American Americans and other Western missionaries are kicked out. You know, before the revolution, there was relative freedom under the Shah of Iran for Westerners to come and, and work and all that stuff. And missionaries did great work in Iran and around the Middle East in establishing hospitals, bringing modern education, establishing orphanages, doing evangelism and discipleship. But it's estimated that when the, at the end, in 1979, after 150 years of faithful missionary service in Iran, Some of those missionaries died and are buried in Iran to this day. But it's estimated that in 1979, we had 500 Iranian converts in the church, converts to the Christian faith from a Muslim background. So there was not a lot of response to the gospel, not only because Iran was a Muslim nation, is a Muslim nation, but because people at the time of the Shah really wanted to pursue their own version of the American dream. Mm. They were not interested in spiritual things or things. More materialism. More materialism and, 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 all, and all this. And, and because of you know the, the Islamic atmosphere of the country, very closed to these ideas. But uh, 38 years have passed since then. And we estimate, and nobody knows the exact numbers, but we estimate that we have more than 1 million Iranians who have professed faith in Christ in Iran right now. So the uh, the Iranian regime thought that's the end of the church. But Jesus has had other plans for the church. And, and <laughs> yeah. I, I want to remind the Americans all the time that Jesus is sitting on the throne. He's Lord of history. And despite all the ups and downs of history, he's actually building his church in the Islamic Republic of Iran. And it's an exciting time for the growth of the gospel because of the disillusionment with Islam, because of the broken promises of the Iranian revolution. People are really open to 
consider the claims of Christ, to consider the gospel. Now, many Iranians are becoming very burnt out on God and religion. They are becoming secularized. They are becoming atheist and agnostic. Some are dabbling in, in Eastern religious mysticism and all that. But in the midst of this spiritual search, many Iranians are coming to faith in Christ. And it's an incredible time in the history of the gospel in our country. You used the word a while ago, diaspora. And of course, there are many Iranian Christians in diaspora who are not living in the geographical limits of the country of Iran today. You are yourself very involved uh, in many ways uh, uh, with a diaspora community. I wonder if you'd say a little bit about the Pars Theological Center, which is based in the UK, where you did your PhD in Birmingham. Tell us a little bit about that and your role in it. Uh, thank you for asking that question. Uh, we estimate that about th- that there are about five to six million Iranians living outside of Iran in diaspora. There are hundreds of thousands of Iranians right now in Turkey as refugees. Many Iranians in the U.S., in Canada, all over Europe, in Australia, all over Asia. So diaspora is a vibrant community. And there are many Iranians who are also becoming Christians in diaspora. We have a lot of Iranian churches and fellowships all around the world. And we've realized that there is there is a desperate need for theological education and leadership development in the Iranian Christian community, both inside Iran and among Iranians in diaspora. There are very few Iranian pastors who have had any kind of formal training or theological education. So a few years ago, a number of my Iranian colleagues and I, we established an Iranian Bible college, Pars Theological Center. Pars is the old word for Persia or Iran. Like the language Parsi. That's right. That's Mm -hmm. right. So um, our goal and vision is to eventually have a fully accredited bachelor's program. We have produced over 20 courses in the past few years, and our courses are online online courses. So we record all our courses. Some of our courses are aired on satellite television, and I would love for us to talk about that a little bit later. But all our courses are available online. But we also have a lot of students inside Iran that because of because of internet security issues, we don't want them to be online, but they have all our courses on, uh, on digital uh, flash drives, other resources, so they can take their classes online. So we have online programs, online courses, but we also do spiritual formation conferences for our students. So one year, uh, one week a year, we require our students to attend a f- spiritual formation conference. And then there is a component of, of practical ministry experience. So we don't want to just give head knowledge to Iranian uh, leaders and pastors. We want to really uh, have an impact in terms of character development, spiritual formation, leadership development. So theological education is, is desperately needed. As the church is growing, uh, as you, you, you are a scholar of, of, of these issues, there can be a lot of heresies and false teachings within the church, a lot of shallow understandings of the scripture. So there is a desperate need. Uh, not, you know, Iranians are doing well right now in terms of evangelism, witnessing to their relatives, friends, and all that. But in terms of a deeper understanding of the faith, there is a huge need for that. And we believe that Pars is uniquely equipped to meet that need. What are some particular theological
practical challenges that you would say Iranian Christians in particular, the church uh, is facing today? A number of theological and then I will also say non-theological challenges. Um, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity is a huge challenge. And in fact, one of the, one of the sects or cults that's growing among Iranians is the, is the kind of the oneness Pentecostal movement, the Jesus only movement, because for coming from an Islamic background, you know, it's a struggle to kind of grapple with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, some of the extreme forms of maybe charismatic understanding of the faith, kind of, uh, we don't need any medicine, we don't need any, you know, we can just kind of, uh, I don't want to say prosperity gospel, but things that might be looking like prosperity gospel, name it and claim it and just have faith and God will do whatever you want. So, you know, a kind of a shallow understanding of, of the depth of, of scripture, you know, dealing with suffering and pain and, and so on and so forth. So there's, on the theological realm, those are the challenges. But then we have a lot of character issues. We have a lot of new believers who are moved into a position of leadership, but they don't have the character maturity, the spiritual maturity to be in that position. And they become very authoritarian in the dictatorial in their, in their approach to pastoral leadership. Uh, Iranians struggle with interpersonal relationships. So we have Iranians are passionate when they come to faith, but when they get together as a group, there can be a lot of dysfunctions as a team. So, so we see that struggle, you know, manifest themselves in our Iranian churches and the churches splitting because of interpersonal conflicts. So a lot of, you know, theological, uh, you know, challenges that we need to address, but also character issues, interpersonal relationship challenges that we, we have to face. So these are kind of some of the things that come to my mind right now. Let me ask you a question. Earlier in our conversation, we talked about the difference between Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims and Sufi. Mm -hmm. uh, you point out in both traditions uh -huh. there are Sufi. Um, it, it seems to me that there is an openness to miracles, to special revelations and prophecy, particularly in the, the Shia and maybe even more so in Sufi Islam. Does that mean that there is a greater openness perhaps to uh, the transcendental message of Christianity, God breaking into our lives, revealing himself? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I mean, more and more Westerners are even reporting this phenomenon that when you listen to the testimonies of many Muslims, uh, you, the element of having dreams and visions of Jesus is a huge part of many testimonies. And then uh, not just dreams and visions. And let me say this. I know sometimes Americans might, you know, kind of get concerned about dreams and visions. In the vast majority of cases that I've heard, the dream and vision points the person to go and read the Bible. Mm. points the person to watch Christian programs or connect with Christian friends or a Christian community. So it's kind of that it brings an openness to start the spiritual search in the dreams and visions that, you know, a lot of times we hear about. Or many Muslims already believe in Jesus as a great prophet. So they pray to Jesus. They pray to Jesus to heal them, to deliver them from oppression, to help with their brokenness. And Jesus shows up. Jesus answers prayers. Jesus heals. Jesus delivers. So yes, so I like to, when I speak in American churches, I say Jesus is running around loose in the Muslim world. <laughs> this is an exciting time. And, uh, yeah. and so, yes, that's, that's, that's part of the culture. 
the openness, as you said, to the transcendental realm, the openness to dreams, openness to miracles. But part of it is that Jesus really shows up in very concrete ways. I have so many stories of people being healed when they ask Jesus to heal them. Uh, Dr. George, one of the one of the most phenomenal ways that God is at work uh, in Iran, for example, is uh, people drug addiction has become a huge problem in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Iran has one of the highest rates of depression, anger, mm. Mm. suicide among women. Mm. So there is, a, there is a tremendous despair mm. at every level of society. So addiction has become a huge yeah. issue in our culture. Many people are now going to their 12-step NA program. And in these 12 steps, uh, they are encountering Jesus. You know, they are opening up to to uh, spirituality, which is not based on Islamic spirituality, but very much within a Christian worldview in many ways. So, so yeah, Jesus is showing up. Jesus is healing and touching lives, and that's one significant way that the gospel is moving forward in Iran. Jesus is on the loose in the Muslim world. Well, my guest today has been Dr. Sasan Tavasoli, a wonderful scholar and activist on behalf of the Christian faith within the greater Muslim world, based now in Atlanta, but really with a ministry that reaches uh, right around the world. We thank God for you and for your visit to Beeson, and we pray every blessing on you as you go forward with this wonderful witness for Jesus Christ and his gospel today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and it's, it's been an honor for me to be your guest today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.